You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You didn't have to follow the race closely to remember when it was finished, and a historic announcement was made in June 2000. It was one of the most significant achievements in modern biology. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. Now, many scientists were involved in decoding the human genome, but one stood out. Before becoming a biochemist and a genomicist, Craig Venter was a surfer and a sailor, and then he made waves as a maverick. He pioneered a highly efficient technique for identifying and tagging genes. And while the government-led human genome project was well underway, announced that his private company was going to take on the task of sequencing the human genome, too. Throwing his pipette into the ring turned a noteworthy effort to map the human genome into a riveting race between governmental and private efforts that galvanized public interest. By the time of its conclusion, the groups were collaborating and crossed the finish line together three years ahead of schedule. This was in great part due to Craig Venter's novel gene sequencing technique. Now, in a few moments, we'll hear from Solera President Dr. Craig Venter who shares in the glory of this day, and deservedly so because of his truly visionary pursuit of innovative strategies to sequence the human genome as rapidly as possible. And it revolutionized the field of genomics. One of the wonderful discoveries that my colleagues and I have made while decoding the DNA over over two dozen species, from viruses to bacteria to plants to insects, and now human beings, is that we're all connected to the commonality of the genetic code and evolution. When life is reduced to its very essence, we find that we have many genes in common with every species on Earth, and that we are not so different from one another. So you may wonder, as I have, what happened to Craig Venter after that monumental day? For a long time, he seemed to be everywhere taking part in our excited global conversation about what it meant to have identified the blueprint for humanity and the kind of new science it might unlock. Then his name didn't pop up in interviews as much. He seemed to recede from the public eye. Maybe after achieving a feat that was basically the moon landing of biology, he had retired from science. But Craig Venter hadn't retired. He had gone to sea and he had taken his revolutionary gene sequencing technique with him. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, a conversation with genomicist Craig Venter about his multi-year voyage to catalog microbial life in the ocean and what he discovered about the roles that even the tiniest organisms play in its ecosystems. This episode is The Ocean's Genome. Craig Venter wasn't the first scientist whose restless quest to understand the vast diversity of life on Earth prompted him to use his sea legs. In 1831, a young Charles Darwin sailed around the world on the HMS Beagle, where, for five years, he kept detailed notes on his observations of the natural world. Well, seafaring science expeditions continue, with some changes. The ships are a little bigger. But in keeping with his pioneering instincts, Dr. Venter made the subjects of study smaller when he set sail on his research vessel, the Sorcerer II. 
There are reports that the ocean had very little diversity and microbes, and that just didn't make sense to me. And combining my love of sailing with uh, science was, uh, many people think, my best idea ever. When the Global Ocean Sampling Expedition began in 2004, biologists had identified fewer than 2% of all bacteria on Earth. This is because if species couldn't be cultured in a lab, they were often too difficult to identify. But Craig Venter's team used that efficient sequencing technique to upturn the widely held belief that microbes were organisms of land, not water. We found there was thousands of times greater diversity than anybody imagined, and that there's more microbes in the ocean than in stars in the universe. So what does it mean that the oceans are replete with microbes? I mean, it shouldn't come as a surprise. After all, we've discovered microbes in our bodies and on our skin. We've even found them deep in volcanic vents. But still, Dr. Venter and his colleagues discovered that the oceans are a veritable soup of microbes, a whole world that Darwin didn't even know existed. We'll hear what this means and how they sequence their genomes and the surprising discoveries made along the way. But first, an account of the team's initial maritime adventure circumnavigating the world's oceans for over two years, where they sailed across four continents and to 23 countries and island groups. Our assistant producer, Shannon Geary, met with Craig Venter at the Festival of Genomics and Biodata in Boston to talk about his book, The Voyage of Sorcerer II, the expedition that unlocked the secrets of the ocean's microbiome. So, Craig, can you give us an idea of what it was like to be on a boat that long? I mean, was it difficult sharing such a small space with a, a full team of people? Well, actually, a 100-foot boat is, is large for a sailing, private sailing vessel. There's now much bigger ones. So everybody uh, would you'd be on for eight hours, and you'd be off for 16. So uh, even though you have 12 people on board, uh, you... you don't see a third of them, you know, all the time. And so actually people get a lot of personal space and you have the whole world outside. So it's pretty spectacular. And, you know, most sailors never go out of sight of land. A lot of sailors never leave the harbor. Uh, It it was just, it was the the most transforming experience of my life uh, other than serving in Vietnam. And uh, it's the way to see the world because world history was established by sailing vessels. You, you see the world from the point of view of the people who initially uh, discovered these places. Your expedition, first of all, you've convinced me. I'm, I've decided I'm coming next time. Uh, but your expedition started in Halifax and I believe ended officially. The last sample was taken in 2018 in Nantucket, Massachusetts, which, you know, not too far from where we are right now here in Boston. But it originally started with a pilot expedition to the Sargasso Sea, which at the time was considered a biological desert. But that's not what you found when you took a sample there. They were up to the seventh organism discovered there, and we just took uh, 200 liters of seawater. We have these different size filters, different pore size that collect viruses, collect small bacteria, uh, larger single-cell eukaryotes, all on different filters. We would uh, ship them on dry ice back to the Institute where they got broken open and sequenced. So and when we did the very first study, uh, instead of seven organisms, we discovered 2,000. And uh, we stopped sequencing after one and a half million new genes were discovered. So we could have just kept sequencing those same samples and gone further. But it so proved the point that we could actually deal with complex mixtures of species and their DNA, and that diversity was orders of magnitude greater than anybody imagined. Because the expedition was somewhat inspired by or followed Charles Darwin's expedition, can you remember back to when you arrived at the Galapagos Islands and kind of what that felt like as a scientist on a boat following a similar path to this, you know, great name ahead of you? In fact, the Galapagos are one of the few places uh, if I had a chance to revisit, I would. Uh, We used his logs and and data, and everything looked very similar to what he described. Uh, 
it's being impacted a little bit by more people trying to move out of Ecuador into the Galapagos, but they're trying to limit that. Most of the islands are still pristine. The tortoises are all the, you know, just all the things as he saw them with the isolated genetics. Um, visiting this island, hiking around it, seeing all the bird life, you know, it was, it was like going living history. You know, one of the greatest adventures was in an island not so far from there called the Cocos Island off of Costa Rica. It's where the opening scenes for Jurassic Park were filmed. And it looks very much uh, like a Jurassic period with these giant birds that uh, look like flying reptiles. And uh, there's no inhabitants other than uh, a ranger station uh, there. Uh, there's a picture in the book of anybody that watched the movie Master and Commander knew the problem that all the ships that went to the Galapagos had is there was no fresh water in the Galapagos. Sailing into this beach on uh, Cocos Island, there were four waterfalls of fresh water going right into the sea. And so all the ships, including Darwin's, went there to fill their water barrels. And most of the ships uh, took time while they were there to carve their names and dates into the rocks. So there's ones from the history of going back to the earliest date we saw was something from the 1700s. So all this history fell into place while we were there, but we had new tools to see the world that Darwin couldn't even imagine. I think he would be pretty stunned uh, to see the developments that have occurred since his time. It would be phenomenal to get his view. And that seems like a great segue into probably my favorite aspect of this book, which is just the adventure. I mean, truly, just the incredible stories that you have from or must have from this trip. And I'm sure there's even more than was included in the book. But one of the things that kind of kept coming up throughout the throughout the chapters was the various geopolitical snafus, maybe I'll say, that you ran into as you were going through all these different oceans and different countries uh, and taking samples. So can you describe, I think one of the ones that stood out to me most was the issues you ran into in French Polynesia. So there's a thing called the law of the sea. It's a treaty that most countries have agreed to. It started with a three mile uh, distance off the coast of uh, countries. And then uh, as more and more fishing rights became concern that extended out to 100 miles. And so countries now by this treaty own all the genetic resources within their coastal waters. So we had to work through the State Department and each country's government where we wanted to sample in that 100 mile range. And because we were doing science and because I became very well known for sequencing the human genome. The geopolitics went up a notch or two. We could have quietly done it, just taking a sample of seawater. Nobody would have noticed until we eventually published the data. But we complied with all the permits, but uh, we got into issues beyond those. Uh, So in French Polynesia, there was a sort of internal battle between the French government in Paris and French Polynesia government in Tahiti as to who had the right to give permits and who really controlled the the waters. Uh, So when we sailed into the Marquesias, uh, we were placed under house arrest and uh, threatened to be sunk if we uh, left harbor. We took it seriously because the French sunk uh, the Rainbow Warrior, the Greenpeace boat in New Zealand that was protesting their nuclear testing. And uh, we got that problem solved by dealing with the French embassy in Washington, uh, the U.S. State Department, and we had to get the U.S. Navy to intervene and inform the French Navy that we were a U.S. research vessel under U.S. protection uh, and they better back off. So uh, we, we didn't get sunk. Didn't you also get boarded by a SWAT team in Australia? Yes. 
So in, in Brisbane, Australia, I'd just gotten back to the, the boat from the Institute in the States. I was on deck in the sunshine having a beer and this rib with uh, 12 heavily armed uh, SWAT team members was coming up the river and I thought, gee, that's unusual. And they pulled into the slip next to us and I thought, this can't be a coincidence. And they came up with weapons drawn and said they were going to board us. And I told them that they couldn't, that we were a U.S. research vessel and uh, uh, they didn't have a search warrant and the embassy would have to be involved. And uh, there was a female captain of the SWAT team. She said that there was a report that we had a meth amphetamine lab on board, which was pretty absurd. You were Walter White, but at sea. <laughs> yes. So I made a, a, a deal with her. I said, if your team takes off their combat boots and ask a crew member to open any door or drawer or compartment, I will let you on board because you'll see pretty quickly we do not have a meth lab on board. And it was clear immediately to her that we did not have a meth lab on board and notified us that, you know, that we had somebody that was uh, obviously not a fan of what we were doing. It turned out one of our crew members that was doing all the sampling was dating a local girl in Brisbane who used to be engaged to this uh, TV personality who was very upset that she broke off the engagement and was dating uh, one of our crew members. So apparently he used his notoriety to call the police and report that we had a meth lab on board uh, trying to get some sort of revenge, I guess. So uh, lots of things that have nothing to do with science. When you're traveling around the world, you run into all kinds of unexpected adventures. Those are just a few. We could not detail them all, but, uh, you know, it, it is a sailing adventure story. It's a science adventure story and one where we made more discoveries of new species than the entire history of science combined up until now. Next, we meet some of those new species when Seth Shostak talks to Dr. Venter and an expedition scientist as we deep dive into the ocean's genome on Big Picture Science. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The use of sailing vessels and science exploration has a long history after all, because you can't really walk to the islands of the Pacific or the South Pole. Darwin's HMS Beagle in 1831 is probably the most famous of these expeditions, but 40 years later, the Challenger expedition laid the foundation of modern oceanography by doing a kind of recon of the world's seas. They mapped some of the ocean floor, measured water temperatures, collected samples of marine life, and by the way, they found many thousands of species that were new to science. Well, following in these pioneering efforts, genomicist and biochemist Craig Venter circumnavigated the globe in his research vessel, the Sorcerer II, collecting samples and cataloging the microbes of the ocean. Dr. Venter drew inspiration from these earlier famous trips, and his goal was similar. Understanding life on the planet. Jeff Hoffman was the expedition scientist on Sorcerer 2 in charge of collecting the samples. The goal was to see what was really out there because no one really had any idea because they hadn't taken this approach. And then, you know, after the first few samples get analyzed, even just kind of blew us all away how much is actually in just a little bit of water. 
most of life on this planet is invisible without a microscope. Most are bacteria and other microorganisms, and they outweigh all the humans, animals, and plants that we can easily see. Yet their great diversity is vastly unknown. Now, of course, we knew that there were microbes in the soil and in the air. Anybody with a microscope will do an experiment to prove that to themselves. But as Dr. Venter said, scientists didn't think they were so diverse in the ocean, which, you know, at first glance looks like a pretty uniform environment from pole to pole. And certainly Darwin, for all his observational skill, wouldn't have known about these tiny organisms anyway, no more than he would know that one day the molecule DNA would become the essential and fundamental part of the theory of evolution. Well, Darwin knew nothing uh, about the genome. Uh, obviously, he had ideas about genetics, but nobody knew what the basis of genetics uh, remotely was. And everything that we look at is beyond visual acuity. So it's a world that Darwin didn't even know existed. Could you briefly just walk us through when you were taking a sample and you were kind of dredging these filters uh, in different points in different oceans? What did that look like? Like about how far down were you putting the filters? Where were the microbes coming from in terms of like where were they in the water column? So all these photosynthetic organisms aren't right on the surface because, you know, they'd probably get fried with too much sun. And so they're at different depths. And so we would measure where the chlorophyll max was, and we would lower our sampling pumps down to that level and pump the water. It was all less than 100 feet uh, for most of the samples. Most of them were fairly close to the surface. Froze the samples immediately, and then we got the port, shipped them back under dry ice or liquid nitrogen to the lab where they're broken open, the DNA isolated, and, and sequenced on the automatic sequencers. And that's when you discovered just how unique these different microbial species were, even just 200 miles apart in the ocean. Yes, in, until we saw the sequence data and analyzed it, uh, we weren't sure what we had. So it's a totally different way of looking at the world, but every species on our planet is a DNA-driven machine, including us. Basically, we'd stop every 200 miles or in different locations based on where we're at. We'd put a pump down in the water and collect between two and 400 liters of water. Based on open ocean, you need more, more water to filter through to make sure you get enough biomass to get enough DNA to sequence. So once it's collected, we sequenced it through three different size filters, a three micron, a 0.8 micron, and a 0.1 micron. After it had gone through the filters, we'd also collect that filtrate and run it through a system that would concentrate viruses down, all the viruses in that amount of water to about uh, a liter. Well, what did the filters look like when you pulled them out of the water? Were they, you know, just clogged with, with biomass or, or something else? You know, open ocean samples, basically, as you go down lower, the, uh, the, the bigger filters were bright yellow, then a little less yellow, and the point one were like, you know, little tins of, you know, yellow-green from the stuff in the water. It, it, based on where you were at, just decided how thick and what color the filters would look like. Craig, you said that you took samples every 200 miles. Is that a magic number? Where'd you get that 200 miles? So we copied the uh, very first ocean expedition in the late 1800s, the Challenger expedition. And they stopped every 200 miles and sent a dredge to the bottom because the theory was there was no life below 18,000 feet. And 200 miles is uh, roughly the distance a reasonable-sized sailboat can sail in 24 hours. So that's why Challenger did it every 200 miles, and that's roughly how far we would go as well. Is there some reason to expect that the, if you will, the biome, the, the living organisms that are present in the ocean would change you know, on distance scales of 200 miles, or is it just the practical matter of how fast the boats went? No, no, nobody had a clue, seeing that they expected very little diversity in the first place. Uh, so the question was, is the ocean a giant homogeneous soup, or is it millions of microenvironments? And with changes in sunlight, current, uh, rain, turns out it's millions of microenvironments. And they're 80% unique every 200 miles. That means there's tremendous species variation, genetic variation over very short distances. 
It could be they change every mile in some cases. So nobody's ever measured before we did it. to say some of the first open ocean samples because mostly the samples were on the coast but when we got probably through the Panama Canal I would say and taken a kind of a sample where there's nothing around you just think there's going to be nothing on here and yeah there's plenty of all right you're starting to realize there's stuff everywhere even in the middle of nowhere So Jeff left uh, Sorcerer to take several trips to Antarctica to sample down there. And that's where some of the highest biodensity was found in this uh, uh, frozen lake that he was probably the first to sample in. I had no idea. It's an ocean-derived lake, but it's been a lake for, I don't know, 50,000 years. And there's no input. There's nothing. It's frozen 90% of the time. And then we drilled a hole, filtered, filtered the stuff. And I, we couldn't get two liters through the filter, which normally we can get two to 400. They were just so clogged with so much stuff. Wow, that gives you an idea of the density of living stuff in the oceans. The team worked to identify and catalog what was gumming up their filters. Now, you can imagine the impossibility of isolating each bacterium or virus to decode its genome. Dr. Venter and his team used the tools he had developed to speed up the sequencing of the human genome more than 20 years ago. That was once a renegade approach, but shotgun sequencing is now standard. Shotgun sequencing involves randomly breaking up the DNA into small pieces and then reassembling genomes by looking for regions where the small pieces overlap. But this is a confusing concept. So, so Shannon, we're going to turn to you now for an explanation of this. Your background is in biochemistry. Why would we break up the DNA if what we want to do is sequence the whole of the genome? Yeah, so shotgun sequencing is a method that is less time-consuming and requires much less genetic material than traditional ways of sequencing. The computer program can recognize genetic sequences that we've already recognized in other organisms. So it speeds up the process because you have referential data that you're using as kind of a baseline. Okay, so it's sort of like if you took many copies of a novel, of the same novel, and tore them all to pieces, you could assemble one usable copy by transcribing those smaller bits of paper, looking for where the sentences overlap, and from that, eventually assembling a whole book. I mean, that's kind of a rough analogy, but does that work? I think that's a great analogy, especially if you're imagining a novel that's really long. Uh, shotgun sequencing is most effective when you're trying to sequence huge pieces of DNA. That's the reason it was invented. Essentially, you're breaking up a long string of base pairs of DNA. You couldn't put a huge genome into a sequencer, for example, the human genome. You couldn't just stick that into a sequencer and say, go for it. It's much too long. It would take forever to try and string together. You're breaking it up into more manageable fragments that sequencers can more easily read. And then the computer algorithm stitches all those fragments together at the end. And it sort of is like putting sentences back in order to read a paragraph through. Okay, thanks, Shannon. That helps a lot. Well, since scientists assembled the human genome after breaking it up into 25 million sequence fragments, Dr. Venter trusted that the process could handle complex genomic mixtures. We knew the mathematical tools we developed for sequencing the first genome in 1995, and then the human genome were so powerful that we thought it would be able to deal with applying it to the environment. Jeff, maybe you can give an, an overview. You pull up a, these water samples every couple of hundred miles on this sailboat, and then you sequence them. Do you sequence them on the boat? Do you bring them back to a lab to sequence them? No, we, we would ship them on dry ice from different ports that we'd come into. They would be, uh, they would be extracted in the lab by you know, people in the lab that had the right instruments and tools they needed. So we just collected on the boat and uh, put them in actual buffers to keep them nice and safe, and then froze them, and then sent them back. Well, but, but if you freeze uh, these organisms, I assume they're all dead after you've done that. Well, you can actually freeze life, and it's fine, but our goal was to isolate the DNA from all the organisms, so we didn't care whether they stayed alive on the filters or not. So, so let me summarize. You take a sample here, you take a sample 200 miles from here, and 80% of them in the second location were different 
than any of those in the first location. Did I get that right? That's correct, and almost all new to science. Nobody had seen them before. So what are all those microbes doing? What is their role in ocean ecology? Well, they have many different roles, but one in particular is crucial. 50% of the oxygen that you have and we all have to breathe comes from the development of this huge diversity of photosynthetic organisms. They convert sunlight into oxygen, and that's how Earth got terraformed, you know, producing eventually enough oxygen to change our atmosphere. Earth did not used to have oxygen in the atmosphere. In fact, one of the major findings we've had is these weren't just discrete individual organisms, but clouds of around 10,000 or more related organisms all producing oxygen. The other key finding was, uh, so for every bacterial cell in the ocean, uh, there's 10 viruses or phage. Uh, The viruses control the density of all these organisms in the ocean, but the viruses don't want to kill their host because they need their host for uh, replication. And one of the major findings was that the viruses actually upgrade the genetic code in their host cells, uh, for example, adding new versions of photosynthetic enzymes to keep their host alive and healthy. So it's an environment that's changing second to second, and the entire basis of the food chain of everything we see and eat starts with these microbes. So it's one of the key messages, if we keep polluting the oceans, and changing these organisms, we're at risk of extinguishing the very air that we need for survival. Shannon, I wonder if you could put in perspective the way in which this technique is really a powerful tool to help us catalog and identify new organisms, such as these microbes. I think Craig said it best earlier in the show when he said his goal for setting out on this expedition was to more deeply understand life on Earth. And there's no better way to do that than by studying the genomics of life on Earth, since genetics is our building blocks. It's the building blocks of how everything came to be. And the data he collected while on the Sorcerer 2 expedition it has been used to build these really large genomic catalogs, um, like GenBank, And these large genetic databases have been a huge help to scientists worldwide and have led to some incredible research discoveries. I mean, the more genetic sequencing data that we have, the more we know about different genes, how they function, what different genes do in different organisms. And all of that will lead to the discovery of new species. It'll help us classify new species easier. It'll give us insights into how certain species, whether it be microorganisms like viruses or whether it be like physical (laughs) marine life, how those organisms have evolved on Earth. I mean, the possibilities with that sort of information are just endless. And in that way, he was building upon what was learned by other seafaring voyages, the HMS Challenger and Darwin's, but also drawing on a similar philosophy, that there is a lot to be learned from cataloging and observing the natural world. That was certainly Charles Darwin's role aboard the Beagle. It was to be an observer. Back in those days, survey ships, what he was on, always took a naturalist along and so he was the naturalist on board this uh, geographic survey ship. And, uh, but both showed the power of observational science, uh, which today is deemed you know, uh, inferior because the government wants you to have a hypothesis you're testing. The government didn't want to fund this. They, you know, they call these things fishing expeditions. But if you like to eat fish, fishing expeditions aren't such horrible things. And uh, we showed that observational science is not dead and that people have learned any kid can go out and take a cup of seawater or pond water or lake water, isolate the organisms, sequence the DNA, and today make totally new discoveries on a constant basis. So we literally were scratching the surface of uh, diversity in the oceans. Thank you.
Next, how human behavior is affecting that diversity. It now includes microbes that feed on plastic. But can we make use of their appetite? We continue our dive into the ocean's genome on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. We've heard about the diversity of marine microbes. They're a fundamental part of our ecosystem, most notably because some produce the oxygen we breathe. But human activity is introducing new challenges, with the result that many microbial species have modified their DNA in response. Researcher Jeff Hoffman says in the last hundred years, an additional component of the ocean environment has prompted a new adaptive behavior in microbes, the ability to eat plastic. Well, we're definitely uh, looking into these bacteria that colonize on floating plastic in the ocean. We did a test run in 2017 up the coast, collecting plastic and isolating stuff. I mean, it, it, I think it's very clear, if I, I could be wrong, that, that there's definitely some ideas that these bacteria are degrading the plastic and living off of it. Well, as I said, they're, they're changing second to second, minute to minute. And so when there's a new chemical substrate for them to grow on because of all the UV light and oxygen cells mutate very quickly, uh, which enables them to adapt to new chemical sources. Craig Venter writes in his account of the Sorcerer 2 expedition that one day while sailing in the Pacific on open waters, expecting not to see anything for miles around except the beautiful blue sky, the team came across what looked like an endless stream of plastic, toys, plates, flip-flops, and sunglasses, even a refrigerator floated by. The amount of plastic is exceeding current rates of degradation but that's the problem. It gets broken down into these microplastic particles that fish and every other species inhale and becomes part of shortening their lifespan. Perhaps the hope for dealing with the abundance of plastic may come from the microbes themselves. Some scientists suggest that maybe these tiny organisms could be used to help us clean up our own mess. Dr. Venter agrees, but with a caveat. So it's a partial solution. Part of the problem is some of these microbes degrade the plastic chemicals into very toxic compounds. So the solution can be uh, worse than the primary problem, but microplastic is now invading virtually every species uh, in the ocean. We did a sampling, I don't know if you've ever been to Lake Tahoe. It looks like beautiful blue, pristine water Uh, Just from dragging a plankton net uh, for a few miles, we collected several million pieces of microplastic. It's everywhere. We've contaminated virtually every environment uh, on this planet, and we have to find some solutions for it. You know, it seems to me that, this is a very naive question, but there should be sort of one optimal design for a microbe living, you know, five meters down in the ocean. And obviously, you know, five meters down would have different temperatures depending what your, you know, latitude was, that sort of thing. But why do you need this incredible diversity? What does it get the microbes to be different from the next microbe over? Well, your question is sort of the naivety that led to people thinking there was not much diversity. In different parts of the ocean, for example, the Pacific Ocean near Panama, there's totally different phosphate levels 
in the water than there are closer to Australia. The organisms change in how much phosphate they metabolize, what they do. If all life on Earth was just one monoculture uh, and all species were the same, it would have probably gone out of existence a long time ago. The diversity of life is what keeps all life going. Microbes are constantly in competition with each other. The chemistry that we discovered in this diversity of organisms is far more complex chemistry than the best human chemists can reproduce. Life exists in every niche on this planet. You have more microbes inside of you and on your skin than people thought existed in normal diversity. So we live in a microbial world. Uh, we're carriers of these microbes. We're alive because of them. You know, as a human who doesn't uh, like to get sick, maybe you guys can tell me whether seeing all these microbe capabilities, as it were, uh, all this variation in the kind of microbial life that you can find in the ocean might allow us to steal some of them, uh, some, some of the chemistry that's going on there to use in treating diseases. Is there that kind of practical application in any of this? People are constantly trying to isolate new antibiotics from these organisms, potentially new uh, anti-cancer drugs, but the chemical pathways we think are gonna lead to everything from new medicines to new chemicals for manufacturing. Uh, it's a chemical repertoire that's not part of the human environment currently and biology produces far more complicated chemistry than can be produced in a research lab. You know, Shannon, when Dr. Venter described the microbes on us or in us, it got me humming. <laughs> We're living in a microbial world and I am a microbial girl. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, I was thinking of that song too. <laughs> So the expedition, the samples collected during the expedition discovered many new species of bacteria and viruses and, you know, oftentimes I think bacteria and viruses have a somewhat negative connotation. They're things that make us sick, but they're actually necessary for life on this planet and for human life to exist. So could you talk a little bit about that? So again, that's part of the human-centric view of life. A very, very small fraction of bacteria and viruses care about humans or cause any disease in humans. In fact, you have about three pounds of bacteria in your body, your microbiome that's helping keeping you healthy and alive. So you're saying I shouldn't go home and take a very hot shower and try to get all that off? <laughs> no, in fact, you know, so many products are trying to you know, sterilize ourselves. You know, we can't, if you eliminate bacteria from your body, you will not live very long or very healthily. They're important for your digestion. You have microbes in our skin, uh, different microbes around each tooth in your mouth. I mean, we have so many microenvironments that are essential for our health. Very few cause disease, but because a lot of things were discovered associated with human diseases. That's sort of how the field of microbiology built. It wasn't built on characterizing the 99.99% of microbes and viruses uh, that live on this planet, which is a microbial planet that we're sort of visitors to. Uh, we focus as humans on the ones like SARS or others that, you know, cause disease. And you know, that, that's not crazy. The, some of them have killed a very large number of people in pandemics over history. And, uh, but most microbes are working to keep us alive, uh, not causing problems. You know, Craig really pushes back on this idea that microbes are simple or incidental. Just because they're small doesn't mean they aren't complex and don't have a fundamental role to play on Earth. Well, exactly. And this brings us to the big picture a little early in the show. Um, but what I'm thinking now are the words that Craig said in his speech at the human genome announcement that we heard in the beginning of the episode. That is, 
we sequenced all these species from plants to animals and, and now microbes, and we have discovered that we are all connected through the genetic code and through evolution. Yeah, we learned about this interconnectedness, but we don't really feel that kinship. We're, we're not often living as though we're all interconnected. And what strikes me the most is that life on Earth could exist without humans, but it couldn't exist without these microbes. That's really hard to take in. I think it's easier for us to acknowledge the impact we're having on macro life, like polar bears, or ice caps melting. But because microbes are integral to life everywhere, any negative impact we have on them is going to affect the rest of our biome too. And that illusion of invisibility also applies to the effects that we are having on the oceans far offshore. People think that there's no problem with throwing some trash in the streets and the oceans and the lakes. And they think, you know, it's just them with their little bit of trash. People that used to, they change the oil in their cars, they dump the, the waste oil in, in the water or someplace else, thinking the ocean's so vast, this is not going to affect anything. And then you get six billion people doing that. And... Uh, we just have massive pollution. But individuals don't think their contribution is great. But the impact of each human keeps getting greater with sort of the disposable lifestyle that we're now living in versus reusing things. So it's something we all have to learn. You know, it's interesting too. I mean, in some ways, it's easy to be pessimistic thinking that individual actions don't have too big of an impact. But if, if individual actions can have a large negative impact on our you know, global ecosystem, assumedly positive changes, small individual positive changes can add up to a larger positive impact on our Earth too. <laughs> no, every, everything we do as individuals count. And uh, it's nice in places like San Diego, they recycle the trash. They're even now start a new thing with uh, things that could go into a composite pile or, or now even having to be separated at e each individual home. So some places are getting very progressive and aggressive with this versus just dumping more and more into landfills and run off in, into oceans. And But some places, I mean, New York City, not very long ago, used to take all the trash from New York City onto large barges, tow them out a few miles to sea, and dump it all in the ocean. I hope they're not still doing that. I, I don't know for sure. Um, but even when we started the expedition up in Halifax, at that time, Halifax did not have sewage treatment plants, and all the sewage from the city of Halifax just went right into the harbor. And we found traces of that with the microbes as we were taking samples there. In some places, the water smelled like sewage. Uh, they've since added sewage treatment plants, but you know, I, you know, much of the world still does not do that. I mean, those, those are simple steps we can take in a society uh, to make a big difference. For his final thoughts, Craig Venter reflected on what it means that large areas of the ocean are now hypoxic, where pollution has caused dissolved oxygen to fall to dangerous levels, what scientists call dead zones. These dead zones are very important for our future. There's uh, multiple rivers in England now where each year they pump oxygen into the rivers to try and keep fish alive for local fishermen and stuff. And we found a dead zone that's been characterized by oceanographers. It's about the size of Africa, where mammals, uh, fish can't survive because there's no oxygen. The organisms we discovered so many of produce 50% of the oxygen. So I think the discoveries we made of these tens of billions of new organisms that help keep us alive and are the basis of the food chain are critical to human survival. And we have to start changing what we do. And I think a lot of the topics that we cover on our show feed into this idea. You have a line towards the end of your book about how human beings tend to think in very human-centric ways. We're not always great about 
kind of relating to and empathizing with the total ecosystem around us and probably particularly for microorganisms, organisms that we can't see with our own two eyes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do we how do we break out of that human centric view? And why is it so essential that we do for the future of our planet? Well, we, we, we started out with religions, with, you know, Earth being the center of the universe, humans being the, you know, the, the center of all life. And, uh, you know, we sort of live in a very narrow zone. We have microorganisms that live at very high pH or very acidic pH, so strong that if you put your finger in that water, dissolve your skin. Uh, we have organisms that live as high as 130 degrees centigrade. Uh, we wouldn't do too well at that temperature. You know, it, we'd be cooking ones that can stand high radiation doses. I mean, the diversity of life on our planet is absolutely stunning, and we could not live in any of those environments, but there's not a single environment on this planet that doesn't have microbial life in it, and they adapt to the extremes of what's there. So we're a long way from being the center of the universe uh, or the center of biology. We're at least a species that has the ability to understand our own biology and our own place in the universe, but we're falling pretty short of that in terms of guaranteeing our own survival on this planet if we don't start changing what we do. Craig Venter is the founder of the J. Craig Venter Institute and co-author of The Voyage of Sorcerer II, The Expedition That Unlocked the Secrets of the Ocean's Microbiome. Jeff Hoffman is the lab operations manager at the Venter Institute and was an expedition scientist on board the Sorcerer II. This show would not be possible without the macro talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that studies life in all its complexity. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our Patreon supporters and all our listeners. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science about the surprising diversity of microbes discovered in our seas is the ocean's genome. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.